The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Our study this evening is on the last letter of the Baptist acrostic, that's the letter T, stands for two offices of the church. And on the past four Sunday evenings, we've talked about the office of the pastor. And I'm not really meaning to drag this all out, but I do think that this needs to be talked about because of the, of the vital nature of the pastor's work. Now, I might mention that leadership, uh, being a pastor over God's flock, has a long history of importance going back into the Old Testament. The patriarchs were pastors, and the prophets were pastors, the priests were pastors, and, and there was a sense in which kings were pastors. Not in the sense that we have a church today, of course, but in the sense of the great care and responsibility they had to lead God's people. Now, in one sense, both Old and New Testaments are a history of leadership. You look into the Old Testament, and you find that it's built upon the framework of the leaders of the people. As the leaders went so did the people. As the king went, as the priests went, so did Israel, which shows us how important it is uh, that leadership is, and uh, it, it's good for us to flesh out everything that we can on this vital subject. I, I said this last week, maybe the week before as well, that I'm getting old, and we don't know how much longer I'm going to live. don't know how much longer the Lord's going to allow me to be pastor, and so someday a new pastor will be chosen, and I want you to know what to look for. Uh, there's no doubt about this, how much that a pastor influences the whole doctrinal paradigm of the church, and how quickly that can change depending upon what the pastor's view of the doctrines of the faith are. Now you might think that I'm giving you uh, too much information, but if you were studying to be a pastor, you would take long courses on every aspect of the office, much more than we're spending in just a few weeks in looking at these uh, passages in the Scriptures. And, in, and truth be told, you are the ones that need to know this information more than professors in a seminary because you are the ones that vote for a pastor. You're the ones who call a pastor to the church, not professors in a seminary. Now, rather than going back through all the previous points that we've had in these other messages, I just want to pick up where we left off last time. And our discussion was on the third point, which is the responsibilities of the office. And the chief responsibility of the pastor is to instruct the church. That's the pastor's main vocation. His primary employment is that of a teacher. He must dedicate his time to the study of the Word. And you expect that the pastor has reached a level of understanding of the Scriptures that's beyond yours. And usually that's the case. The scope of the pastor's knowledge is almost always going to be greater than that of the average person that sits in the pew. I explained last time that it's not always that way because a church might have former pastors or educators that sit in the congregation and there are times that a pastor might think that what he should be doing is listening rather than teaching. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Timothy to have the Apostle Paul there when he was preaching. And I don't know if it happened that way, but I can very well imagine that, that Paul probably scoped out Timothy's preaching to see if he was 
able to do what, what he was supposed to do. And you can imagine how Timothy must have thought to have Paul sitting there. Those are the kinds of things that make a pastor nervous. I'm a little bit that way when we have a visiting preacher. Uh, preachers evaluate other preachers. And so what we do when someone else is up here preaching a message, we're always sitting there thinking, how would I present that same information if I was preaching? And of course, it's always better than the person that you're listening to. But you think about that, and this is what pastors are. They are vultures that feed on the carcasses of other pastors. But there aren't any other preachers here, I don't think. Uh, Jorge, I've got to watch myself there. Uh, but, so I'm not really concerned about the evaluations, but that doesn't lessen the absolute necessity of a pastor studying and teaching the truth because there is somebody listening who knows all. And we have to give an account to him. And so we're not going to be graded on a curve when we stand in front of him. So we're, we are going to give that account of how we handle God's word. Now the knowledge of the word then is the, 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 the highest on the list of the qualifications for a pastor. If you turn over just a few pages to 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul instructed Timothy in this way. He says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, our goal then is to take what we know and equip others. Now, Paul here is speaking specifically of teaching men to be pastors and other important teachers of the church, but I also think that there's an application that needs to be made to every person that sits in the pew. That is, if you're going to be a witness for Christ, then you need to be concerned about how proficient that you are in the Scriptures. I've met people who say, I can't witness. I can't talk to people about the Lord because I just don't know enough. I haven't studied enough. I don't know enough about the Bible. Well, that's something that can be easily remedied. And that's study. Get into God's Word. Learn the Word, and then you can answer the questions that people ask. Secondly, it is the pastor's job to shepherd the church. Teaching, of course, is a part of shepherding, but there's much more involved in it. Instruction is part of the job, but so is the personal perspective of being a guide and a friend and a confidant to those who are in the church. Shepherding has, is this intimate, personal contact that a man has with the people. A pastor is a shepherd when people can think of him as someone that they can go to when they have a problem, somebody they can talk to. And I'm very happy to give you spiritual advice, but you don't want to come to me and ask me which stocks you should pick. And I'm not going to tell you what kind of car that you should buy. Uh, I don't want to run your life, although some of you, I would be happy to offer you fashion advice. I can do that. Uh, for some reason, you know, Jason always wants to know who, who makes my ties that I wear and, and the cut of my suit. He's always trying to check those things out. So if you need that kind of help, really, uh, I, I'll try to make you look good. Just come and ask me. But shepherding involves uh, being a friend who will tell you what you need to know even if you don't like the advice. And that's one of the hardest parts of being a pastor, and that's having to rebuke those that are your friends, when the advice is very hard to swallow. Paul told the Corinthians that he didn't especially like it when he had to, to crawl all over them, but he said, I'm going to do it. He said, if you don't, he wrote to them and he says, if you don't correct some things, you're not going to like it when I get there. I'm going to take care of some things when I show up. And so sometimes the pastor has to be Rehoboam. I will chastise you with scorpions. And sometimes that has to be done. Now here, here Paul is the authority. He expected people to listen. 
A shepherd cares for the sheep, sometimes to keep the sheep in line. He has to take the crook of the staff and grab them around the neck and pull them back. Get them to do what they're supposed to do. And you need to be thankful for that. Be thankful when the pastor preaches messages that stomp all over your toes because it's better for him to do it than it is for the Lord to get hold of you and chastise you for your sin. Well, that's what we covered the last time. So now I want to move on to cover the final point of responsibility. And that is the pastor must administer in the church. He must administer. I really love the teaching aspect. My favorite part of pastoring is to take what I've learned from the study of the Word and give it to you. I like to study. I like the the prep time that's put into every Sunday service. I like the time I have in the pulpit. I'm anxious to give you the benefits of what I've learned in my personal study time. And I'm just like you. There are some messages that I like better than others. And I'm not sure if the ones that I like are the ones that you like. I've been told that that sometimes there's more information than necessary. That what I need to do is just stop all the background stuff that I usually give and, and uh, lean more towards encouragement. And, and maybe I am overbalanced in this information uh, encouragement dichotomy. Maybe I am overbalanced. You have to decide whether I am. But sermons do need to be exposition of the Scriptures, and they also need to be application of them. And I'm sorry if I, if I tend more towards uh, trying to get you to think about the information and, and make some of those applications yourself. Because instead of spoon-feeding you, I want you to take the Word of God and think about it and learn from it and put some of your own effort into it. Now, I think that Paul was sometimes exasperated by the reaction of those Corinthians Uh, when he was upset that there were things that he had to keep going back over, things that they should have learned and things that they should have made applications over. But in any case, uh, it's it's the instruction part of pastoring that I strongly favor. I like about 95% of shepherding. Uh, I grew up as a very reserved person. I wasn't someone who was likely to stand up in front of people. I never liked to do that, when, especially when I was a teenager. And if you knew me as a teenager, you'd say, well, that guy's never going to do something like this. I just wouldn't do it. I'm not a very outgoing person, and so I have to work really hard at that particular part of shepherding. So I'm not likely to spend five nights a week in your living room sitting with you. That's just not me. I, I'm just not going to do that. But this part of the ministry, the administrative part of it, that's the least favorite. Now, as, as a pastor... Uh, I, I must be a bishop, that is an overseer. That means that I have to administrate all of the ministry activities that take place in the church. But as you know, if you've been around here very long, I'm not a micromanaging pastor. I know that there are pastors that are like that. Some want to know the account of how many paper clips are left in the dispenser. And some want to have an accounting of how much scotch tape is left on the roll and how much each person uses when they decide they're going to tape a piece of paper. And then when it's time to buy more, there has to be a signed requisition with a stamp of approval on it. Some pastors are like that. They like to control finances. They handle the offerings. They inspect the tithe envelopes. They write the checks. That's a pet peeve of mine. I don't want any part of those kinds of things. Um, Pastors love control. And they think that if they let any of that control out to others, that that is a threat to pastoral authority. I'm sorry. I don't like to operate that way. I don't like power plays. 
I don't like pedestal pastors. I don't like pastors that crave recognition and power. And so you'll notice that in our church, there's a lot of delegation. We appoint people to the administration. People can do other things besides me doing them all. Uh, I don't like making all of the decisions and holding everybody's hand through everything that you need to do. Now, Tabor, where's, there's Tabor, our singer over there. Tabor is, uh, Tabor is the Sunday school superintendent. But you ask Tabor how many times that I've inspected his orders for Sunday school material. Ask him how many times I've done that. If I have to do that, why do we elect him? Let him do his job. Now, if, if things go badly for administration like they did with Wells Fargo, then I'm going to take the beating. I know that. As Harry Truman said, the, the buck stops here, and I understand that. But I don't want to do certain things. I don't want to go back there and twist Bob and Steve's knobs. I mean the ones on the port, of course. I mean, uh, I don't want to do that. I, I tell them what I like, and I leave it there. And they take care of it. Bob decides which parts of the message he doesn't like. He cuts those out of the recordings, and then I accept that. That's, that's what I have to live by. Now, th this is what I believe about administration. The pastor is responsible. Ultimately, he's going to be responsible for everything. But I think it's best to be an Act 6 pastor. You know what that is? An Act 6 pastor? That's someone who says, let's appoint somebody else over this business, and I'll give myself to study and to prayer. So I think that the overzealousness of a lot of pastors to control every single thing has probably caused a, a backlash in, in Baptist churches that have now gone over to elder rule. And this may very well be payback. I mean, there's so much abuse of the pastor's office that it had to be concentrated into a plurality of elders so that one man did not take too much authority. It's a third John Diotrephes problem. Pastors that love to have the preeminence in the church, and what they do is they have a bully pulpit. This is what I ask of people who have delegated authority. Do a good job. Tabor, do a good job. Do a good job. Video people, do a good job. Don't go to sleep back there, Samuel. Pass, push the button at the time to push the button. Sound man, sound men, do a good job. Make me sound better when you're back there working. Do the very best you can to give me a very deep authoritative verse, we, a voice rather. We, we need to do that. So when, when, when everybody does well, I look good. That's what this is all about, making me look good. So you guys do your job, and, and uh, I'll, I'll take the credit for all the good stuff, and you're going to get the blame for all the bad, so it's best that you do a good job. So that's what I think about administration. One more comment I'd like to make on this point. I very much appreciate the administrative help that I have in the office. Uh, my, my wife takes care of a lot of things that I never have to think about or even know about. Uh, Linda volunteers in the office, and, and she knows that on many occasions I need looking after. And so she's meticulous about things. She spots mistakes. She looks at things that I overlook. She corrects. She takes care of a lot of things that I don't see. And it's these nitty-gritty things that have to be done that I can't spend time doing. So she edits the sermons for doctrinal clarity. If you have a problem, talk to her. You know, I'm kind of joking about that, but if I could take you back 15 years, when I first became the pastor 14, 15 years ago, the church secretary, who was not then my wife, but the church secretary used to type the sermons. And I said, 
I don't think so. I don't think I need that kind of oversight. So we stopped all of that stuff. Well, why do I tell you all these things? I tell you this because this is stuff that somebody has to know. You've got to know these things about running a church. It's practical stuff that your children need to know. If something happens to me, you need to know it. Your children need to know it because they will have to appoint another pastor. And what I would like to see, I want to teach you to do these things so that when I'm gone, you pick a pastor that is as perfect as me, and we just go right on like it was. Now, with that comment, let's go back to the text of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Four and a half sermons, we've covered verse number 1. Now we're going to move into the next verse. And now I want to begin to talk to you about the personal character of the pastor. And I realize that I have to be very careful here. Uh, My intention in the interpretation of this text is to keep from disqualifying myself. And so you take that exposition in mind as that's what I'm doing here. So Paul's instructions to Timothy are about church order. And at, at, at this time, and especially in 2 Timothy, he knew that he didn't have very much time left. Now if you'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 for just a moment. You can see in the first part of the chapter that Paul began final instructions. He says in verse number 2, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Paul charged Timothy to be faithful to preach the word without regard to opposition, without thinking about who liked it, to be persistent about it, to be patient to do it, to do it without exasperation, without reservation. And he had to do it according to verse number 1 because he says there's an account that's going to be made to the Lord. Now verses 3 and 4 tell us about the difficulty of, res- of people responding to the truth. That is, people like what they like. They like their own truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. And strong, convicting doctrine is not often what they want to hear. And Paul says to Timothy, you can't let that kind of thing deter you. Then he goes on in verses 6 to 8 to say his farewells. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. These two letters are final instructions. As I said in the beginning, old ministers die. They have to be replaced. And so we have to be careful to teach the truths of the faith to every generation so they can pass them on to their children. And that's the way it's always been done in church history. We have a church today because of this. Uh, The Bible has not changed. Qualifications for a pastor have not changed. And so what we're doing here tonight will continue to be done until Jesus comes again. And we handle the word of life. We're, we're, We're responsible to preach Christ. And so there ought not to be anything in a pastor's life that gets in the way of this. How can we preach Christ? Now, if Timothy was going to pass the truth on to new pastors, who are the men he's going to choose? What are these men to be like? And that's what these next verses talk about. They speak of the character of the pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 2. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his own house, 
having its children in subjection with all gravity. Now this evening we're just going to look at this first qualification for a pastor. Here it says that he must be blameless. Let's examine that word and the implications of it for just a few minutes. This word means that there ought not to be anything in a pastor's life that brings reproach upon the name of Christ. I want you to notice something about the requirement. If a church is looking for a man to be a pastor, they must look into his background. I, it won't be just to look at what he's doing now. What he's doing right now is certainly important. But there has to be a pattern in the way that the man has handled himself in the past. A good case in point would be to look at the uh, men that were chosen as candidates to replace Judas as an apostle. They had to, to look at the past. If you go to Acts chapter 1 and you start to look at that passage and to see what, what went on there and how they, how they did this, they had to find somebody who stuck to the teachings of Christ. They had to find men that had accompanied with apostles and maintained their faith through the same struggles that the apostles went through, that they stayed with Jesus even though there was so much opposition against him. And we're not going to go through all the criteria that's in that Acts 1 passage, but I surely do think there are some other things that are, that are implied in what they were to do to choose the right men. There's no way that a man would have been chosen who didn't have a good reputation. A man that had no blight on his character. The same is true in Acts chapter 6 when it talks about choosing deacons. That they were to look for men of good reputation. Men that had been vetted and known to have a good testimony for Christ. Men who lived a clean lifestyle and were morally pure. Now I hate to bring this incident up again, but... I can't help but believe that this is a teaching tool for our church. And that is that recently we learned that one of our missionaries was involved in some serious sin, including pornography and gambling, and that he'd done that for or lived a, a double life of sin for about 20 years. And when that was found out, that had devastating effects on him, on his family, on the churches that he helped to start, and on churches like ours that... Uh, had a part in, in supporting his ministry. And so we were shocked to find that out. And there's no doubt that when that happened, and, and when, when all this was found out, that that hurt the cause of Christ. What is it that the enemies of God would think of? What are they going to say? Would they use that as an excuse to blaspheme the Lord and his church? Oh, it's as Nathan the prophet said to David after the adultery with Bathsheba and when he had her husband Uriah killed Nathan came to him and he said how be it because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die now if you'll let me have a little bit of license to spiritualize on that text for just a minute when the pastor of a church gives occasion for the enemies of Christ to blaspheme the Lord and his church the child may indeed die. I mean that the church is torn apart. People lose their faith in the leadership. Now, as I said earlier, the, frame, earlier, the framework of Old and New Testaments are built upon the character of leaders. Now, I made a comment about this tragedy in the form class some weeks ago, and I, I said that I believe that this missionary disqualified himself from the pastorate. Now, his church, his mission board, agree with that. And although they're working to restore him, returning him to the mission field is not an option. 
Thankfully, he repented of the sin. He's on the road to recovery. That's a very painful road that's going to take a lot of determination and prayer. But he's not on a path to the restoration of the office of pastor. That can't be done. And that's because the breach is far too serious to restore that kind of credibility. I don't think that he would do this, but I know that there are some who think that after a time, after a time of repentance and restoration, that he could make an application to go back into the ministry again and be a pastor. I don't think so. I think that avenue is closed. That door is closed. There are other ways that the man can, can serve the Lord, but being a pastor is not one of them. This is too serious. There are sins that people can commit that are an anchor about the neck that the Lord's just not going to permit for them to be pastors again. Now, churches have to be very careful about that. They have to investigate the past. At least they've got to start there to see if the man is consistent. This is not an example of a man who was God-called, but you may remember when Jimmy Swaggart was exposed for running with prostitutes that the Assemblies of God demanded that he step down from the pastorate. Now, their reputation on this particular thing isn't exactly stellar, but they did ask him to step down, and Swaggart didn't like it. He thought that with his Holy Ghost charisma that he should be preaching. He was too talented to step down from the pulpit, and so what he did was just to ditch his affiliation with the Assemblies of God, and then he returned to the pulpit. Now, since that first encounter, he's been found out at least two more times, and his son, Donnie, who took over that ministry as the pastor of the church, hooked up with a woman in the church, and divorced his wife. And it just goes on and on and on. Who suffers? The baby. God was blasphemed, and weak Christians can't hardly hold on. Now, a pastor has to have the full confidence of the people. He can't be shady. His character can't be in doubt. Sometimes he's going to be lied about. And he has to exonerate himself. And the only thing that he has to fall back on is the truth. And let it be the truth. Now another example would be the, the types of sin that forever keep a man from ever entering into the pastoral office. Now we realize that all of us sin. Uh, certainly we know that we're all sinners. But we also know that there are some sins that are worse than others. And even if you've been saved from sin, and you're saved out of sin and out of those sins... There are things that are in the past that can disqualify. Jorge and Richard went to the state prison at Avenal where Brother Castro is a chaplain. That prison is peculiar because the men there have committed crimes that other criminals won't put up with. They can't put them in another prison because they wouldn't survive. It's because of the nature of their offenses. So you may say, well, what's Pastor Castro doing there? Can those men be saved? Of course they can be saved. God saves people from the worst kinds of sins. And none of us is any better than them in this sense. We're all capable of the worst that human depravity can do. Can those men be saved? Yes, they can be saved. Could they learn in prison and come out with qualifications to be a pastor? No. No, they can't. The sins that they committed prior to salvation would keep the man out of the office because he's never going to be accepted among those that he ministers to. And the communities that he goes into are not going to accept him. Do we want to see sex offenders and child molesters saved? Yes, we do. Are we going to train them to be pastors of churches? No, we won't. 
God knows that's not going to work. And I don't think that God issues a divine call to a man who's saved out of those kinds of sins. Now, I know that's very difficult, but you've got to think these things through. The pastorate is a different animal when it comes to service. Leadership has to be respected on all levels, not only inside the church, but outside the church. And that seems like a very odd thing to say, that the world would have anything to do with who can be selected as a pastor. But isn't that true? Prior sins are the issue in the very next qualification that we're going to talk about a little later on. But being chosen as a pastor has a lot to do with the nature of the work that's done. People can't look at the pastor and be always thinking about his past life. They're never going to look at a pedophile through any other lens but that of a pedophile. And so the world is not going to give that man a pass because he becomes a Christian. So all of us are sinners, but we have to say that there are some sins of a past that will disqualify and some sins that don't disqualify. If being a sinner disqualified you from being a pastor, then we wouldn't have any pastors. But the plain truth is, some sins are worse than others. A man might serve time for murder, and the state says he's rehabilitated, and they let him go. Could he be a pastor? No. He doesn't have the qualification to be a pastor. Now, if you're thinking about this, then you would say, well, wait, wait just a minute. Aren't there some exceptions? Think about John Newton, who was a captain of a slave ship, cruelly treated slaves, caused the deaths of some under horrible circumstances. But John Newton became a powerful preacher of the gospel, and he wrote Amazing Grace. Think about Paul. Is he an exception? Paul was guilty of taking... Christians to prison, probably killing them, but he overcame that past. What's the difference? Well, I'll tell you, I don't pretend to know all of this. I can reason, perhaps, that Paul's crimes were committed in a Jewish society, in a Gentile society, that weren't offended by the things he did in his former life. If Paul had been guilty of some notorious sexual sin, then maybe, I don't know, uh, maybe he wouldn't have been accepted. All I can tell you about is what we're dealing with right now. That in the society in which we live now, it is not going to embrace certain sins. There are certain things that are always going to be a death blow to the effectiveness of a pastor, and we had best not try to force the issue to choose people to be pastors, even if they are forgiven of their sins and they're good Christians and they're doing great. If they have that albatross around their neck that they can't get rid of, then we don't consider them for the pastorate. So the past of the person has to be considered when choosing a man. Now, we, we can find people without taking a risky path. As I said, I don't believe the, the Lord would even put a church in the position of choosing a man by issuing a call to someone who has that kind of a past. Now, as, as I talk about all the extreme cases, we do need to come back to the more practical of this of the time that, we really do live in right now. We cannot expect a perfect pastor. Pastors are men with faults. And if you think it's your job to capitalize on the pastor's faults and to exploit them to your advantage or use them for excuses to do what you do, if you make it your business to point out all of his faults for any other reason except to help, and you make sure that nobody misses the pastor's faults, then you can be the one who destroys the man and his ministry. 
The faults of a pastor must be handled like those of other members. You start by praying for him. You, you help him to bear his burdens. You consider yourself, lest you're also tempted. You take a Matthew 7 approach to this. And the first thing that you do is you check out your own life. And you see, is there sin there that disqualifies me from pointing out the sins of another person? That's what Matthew 7 says that we need to do. So before you try to correct the pastor, make sure that you corrected the sin in your own life. But on the other hand, there are pastors who want you to be convinced they have no faults. They, they want to be seen as the holy man of God. No one dares to say anything about. And so when they see the pastor go by, they say, there goes that holy man. I wish that I was like him because he's conquered all spiritual battles. And you can't imagine how untrue that is. Who do you think does more spiritual warfare in the church than any person? It's the pastor. There are more spiritual battles that take place in the mind of the pastor because Satan targets him. He's the chief target of attack. Like David, Satan knows. You bring down the leader, and that's going to have an effect on everybody. You destroy the man, you destroy the tribe. Kill the shepherd, and the sheep are easy pickings. Is that true? Kill the shepherd, who's going to defend the sheep? Now, now take a look at this. How many times have pastors fallen and the sheep fall over a cliff? Oftentimes, people's confidence will be in the pastor. And when he falls, they become disillusioned, and they also fall. If he can't win spiritual battles, they reason, how can I? And you see, that's the very danger of what happened to that missionary. Who is he going to be able to teach to fight sexual addiction? Is he, if he's not able to keep pure by trusting the Lord, if that didn't work for the pastor, then how does that work for the man in the pew? How, how does he do that? Now, be aware that Satan knows all these things. He's had thousands of years to perfect his art. He knows how to bring down leadership. On our prayer page every week, you'll notice that my name is at the top of the list. But how many of you heard me mention my name when I go with the prayer page? Very, very rarely do I say anything about me. But I'll tell you this, if there's anybody on that prayer page that you pay, pray for, it ought to be me. And I don't say that out of selfishness. I'm just telling you that you pray for the pastor because when he is protected, you are protected. When I do well, you're going to do well. So instead of criticizing, consider that nobody fights a harder battle than me. Every day is a struggle. And like many of you, I don't always win. I'm going to admit that. I don't always win. There are things that I keep to myself that I don't share with you because it's not profitable for you to know them. But you need to know that a pastor has to be prayed for. He needs help. Now, I love it when I hear that people are praying for me. Cindy Lostness used to go out of the church often, and, and she would say to me, is there some specific way that I can pray for you? And I had a hard time answering those questions because I knew there's so many private struggles that are going on. Those things are there. We need prayer for that. And then let me say this, that there are some of you that are my struggle. That I wonder, how could I do better? What's wrong with me that you won't come to hear the Bible taught? Now, those of you that are here tonight, I don't worry too much about you, but there's some in the church, I wonder, what's wrong with me? Why, why won't these people come to hear what I have to say? But then maybe it's not me, maybe it's them. But you need to know that one of the ways that Satan gets to me is through you. 
He discourages me through your unfaithfulness. So you need to know that my faults cause people to fall and your faults cause people to fall and sometimes it's me. I can fall because of some of the things that you do. You know, I'm always drawn to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 11. There in that chapter, he says, I've been robbed. He says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I was stoned. He goes on, I've had troubles, troubles, troubles from everywhere. And then, interestingly, he says in the 28th verse of that chapter, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. What a statement that was. Besides all the terrible things that happened to him, in that very same breath, he says, and what about what the people of God did to me? And I think that he had a lot of those criticisms in mind, a lot of unfaithful people in mind that were very taxing and hard to deal with. Now let me return for just a moment to blameless. I'm not trying to give excuses for not being perfect. You need to consider the character. The character cannot be compromised because the pastor's character will be reflected in the sheep. Eventually, a bad pastor will ruin the sheep. Let me give you another thought. You can't let this stuff go because people need to be taught this. We don't overlook it. The pastor should not be unduly criticized, but neither should the pastor be given a free ride. Sin leads to rank corruption. Now you look at Catholicism for a minute. They, they covered up their pedophile priest, and not for a few years. Don't think that this is a recent thing. This has gone on for centuries. From the highest places of their hierarchy, this has been a problem in Roman, the Roman Catholic Church. And what they've always done is to cover up corruption. And what's happened to them? Well, the, the people somehow retain faith in that corrupt system. I don't know how. But that church is rotten. And as you know, the abdication of the last pope was most probably because of his past and investigations into pedophilia. Roman Catholics wouldn't do anything about that until they were forced to by an investigated, unforgiving public. So there wasn't any help for anybody inside of the church. But let's not drive nails in the coffin of the Roman Catholic Church without considering what's going on in Baptist churches. What's in that Baptist closet? There's a large fundamental ministry in Florida that covered up the sexual abuse of the pastor by letting him retire from the ministry and not just going away but sending him as a missionary to Germany to practice his art there and why did they do that to keep the scandal under wraps rather than confessing it and dealing with it now why am I saying that I'm saying this because the reputation of the man is critical Paul wouldn't stand for these kinds of abuses. This is exactly what he tells Timothy. When I'm gone, you make sure that the men that you choose are above reproach. The gospel of Christ depends on it. It depends on it. Well, I'm a little bit over time, so I'm finished for tonight. Next week we're going to... Well, it won't be next week. Uh, we're doing uh, not having services next week, are we, on Sunday night. So in a couple, three weeks... We're going to look at the next qualification. That's an interesting one. It's a very controversial one. We'll discuss that. But for now, I want you to remember to pray for leadership. That we have a demanding job with demonic opposition. The battles are real. And we can't fight these things without the prayers of God's people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, bowing our heads with reverence. And thinking, Lord, about 
how miserably we fail at doing what we should do. Or we're not worthy to take on these kinds of responsibilities. And the only way we can be is to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, dedicated to the work that needs to be done, and to have the prayers and support of your people. Well, we pray for our church. We pray for this office of the, of the pastor. It needs to be right. Help me to be that kind of pastor, to be the kind that is right, to have the qualifications and, and the teaching aspects of it, the moral qualities, all these things. Lord, help us, help, help us with that. Lord, bless this church. We're thankful for it. And we're thankful for the, the fellowship that we'll have tonight after the service and just the kindness of, of your people treated, were treated so well. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we know there are many, many, many good people in our church that would do everything that needs to be done. And they support and they help and always there when something is, is needed. We thank you very much for that, Lord. Thank you for bringing Baptist Church. Bless us tonight. We, we give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.